our death is definite. And at the time we die, the only thing that comes with us is our karma and the mental habits that we've created in our lives. So seeing that, we see that it's extremely important, more important than anything else, to take care of our mental habits and the karma we create, the actions we do of body, speech, and mind. And one of the greatest mental actions we can do is the generation of bodhicitta. Reminding ourselves again and again of that magnificent aspiration to attain full enlightenment for the benefit of each and every sentient being. So let's generate that right now. Okay, so um, I'm going to talk about the development of the traditions today. The, so we were talking before, the, the Buddha lived around the 6th century uh, BCE and uh, lived for 80 years, spent the last 45 of them going around India teaching to whoever came to see him or whoever he went to see. And uh, after his Parinirvana, when he passed away, then immediately after that, under the guidance of um, Maha Kesapa, they had the first council where they gathered 500 arhats together <coughs> to, um, to record, not record in a written way, but in a verbal way, um, or should I say to collect the, the teachings the Buddha had given. And so the, the feeling was right away, you know, we've got to gather the teachings, we've got to make sure everybody's on the same boat about what the Buddha said so that all the teachings are preserved accurately and people just don't go and make up their own trip about either the Dharma or the Vinaya. So they had that, um, that council right after the Buddha passed away. Then, about a hundred years later, there was a second council. Um, and this one came about because of uh, a schism that had developed. There, there were monks in Vasali that had started to use money and started to store salt in a horn and do all these other things that were against Vinaya. There were ten actions that, that they were doing that were against Vinaya. And somebody, another monk who was there, had told them what they were doing was wrong. These Vasali monks got angry and kicked him out. He went somewhere else and got the Teras, the elders of the tradition, to come back to to Vasali with him. And they had another council and discussed these ten issues. And they decided that the Vasali monks had messed up and how they were keeping Vinaya was not accurate. 
So the schism, you know, did reach some kind of resolution and people got back on track. Now sometime after that, and it's not clear when, there was another schism. And some historians say that the second one was the reason for the for the second council, but a lot of them say it, it wasn't, and I don't think it was. Um, the second one, the, the first schism was about issues of Anaya. The second one was issues of doctrine, and because there was a, uh, some people who were starting to really question uh, what an arhat was. Okay, and we're saying, you know, were there different degrees of arhats, and some degrees of arhats could fall back, and the arhats' enlightenment wasn't the same as the Buddha's. There's a lot of discussion about whether lay people could attain arhatship, or did one have to be ordained to become an arhat? So there was all this kind of discussion. So... um, they had some kind of gathering. It's not. It, it doesn't seem to be listed as one of the councils, but some kind of gathering. And that one wasn't really resolved so well. They, there, there was a split into the stavira, which were the elders. That's the stavira is the Sanskrit for Tara, Taravada, okay, and um, and the Mahasangika. So the Mahasangika were um, were the ones who were questioning about the arhatship, and and it seems like already at that time, and this must have um, occurred between 100 and 200 years after the the Parinirvana, then the Buddha was, um, at least in popular scriptures, begin to be seen as more and more. Uh, cosmic and with greater and greater qualities and so on. Okay, Then um, then there was an, another actual council, the third council, Okay, which was another schism. And this was the council at uh, Pataliputra. And this one was about 250 B.C. Okay, And so... Um, this was again an issue of doctrine, you know, and they, the, the Sangha members had some different things, and it was about whether past and future things really existed or didn't exist. So a lot of philosophical, doctrinal things. And um, it, it seems like that took that council, that third council took place during the reign of King Ashoka, who was, um, he was a really great Buddhist king. He, well, he had started out not really Buddhist, and he killed a ton of people in battle. And then when he realized what he did, he had extremely, extreme regret, and he uh, became a Buddhist. And he had all these edicts written. So all over India, you have the remnants now of Ashoka's edicts. And there are these pillars. Um, in fact, in the Indian rupee, isn't it? They, they have the pillar um, with the the three lion's heads. And that's kind of a, a real symbol of India now. And it, it came from King Ashoka. And so he had these edicts um, spread throughout the land where he really encouraged people to live very ethical, moral lives, to be kind, to share things, 
to not harm each other, um, who's really quite something in terms of a ruler. Okay, uh, he also began to spread the Dharma, and so his son, who was um, what was his son's name? His daughter was Sankamitra. His son was Mahinda. Okay, so he sent his son to um, Ceylon, to Sri Lanka, to bring the Dharma there. And then uh, not too long after, and so his son started the, the monk's order in Sri Lanka. And then not too long after that, his daughter, um, Sangamitra, brought a branch from the original Bodhi tree in Bodh Gaya down to uh, Ceylon. And she began the bhikshuni lineage, the fully ordained lineage in Ceylon. Okay, and so then Buddhism spread to, to Ceylon. It became quite um, widespread there. Of course, there were certain divisions there into the monks from the Mahavihara and the monks from Abhayagiri. And, you know, human beings uh, do their thing. But, but Buddhism really spread. Um, and it's the first records that we have uh, where it actually says that the, that the scriptures were written down were from the what's it called the Dava Vamsa one Selenese chronicle um, you know they kept the history and that said that in the first century uh, BC then the monks saw the loss of human beings, and it's not clear what that means, whether there was political problems or maybe disease or something, but it made them uh, decide to write the, the scriptures down. So it seems like they may have had a large group recitation and then written the scriptures down, or maybe later centuries, you know, attributed retrospectively to them that they had a large group recitation. And anyway, it seems like that's when the Pali canon began to be written down. Now, what's very curious about the full thing is that, you know, that was the first century B.C. Then you had two centuries prior to that, during the time of King Ashoka, who was a Buddhist king, He's writing all these edicts. So, you know, writing is fairly widespread there. Why weren't the scriptures written down in India? No? And because uh, it, it seems like, you know, when writing first began to be used within the Buddhist community, they would do it uh, for inscriptions of benefactors, you know, to, to keep up with, bene, you know, different benefactors. So you would think that maybe the Sangha would see the worthwhile of writing down the scriptures too, not, yeah. So it, it, it's, um, I'm doing some reading on this right now. I'll let you know what I learn. <laughs> okay, but it's not quite clear. It's a question in my mind. Uh, why they waited so long. It could be that, you know, in, in ancient India there was a great regard, and even now for the oral tradition, the Vedas, which uh, were present at the time of the Buddha, were all passed down orally. And so, you know, it could have been in regard, in, you know, that that's just the way things were done in religious communities then. So the Buddha scriptures too were passed down orally. But when you think about it, some of the 
uh, monks came from the classes in society where writing was known even before the time of King Ashoka. And so you would think that they may have taken notes or they may have written something down. You know, it's it's very curious. But it's it's difficult to find out because if they wrote anything down, it was on palm leaves or papaya. How do you say papaya? Yeah. So it all kind of got disintegrated. Okay. Now also, around the, the time of... Um, you know, the first century BC. You you have the beginning of the appearance of the Mahayana scriptures. Now, many historians say that the Mahayana scriptures actually are descendant from the Mahasangikas, who were the ones during this first doctrinal split between the Staravadas and the Mahasangikas about the status of the Arhat. Some say that the Mahayana was a descendant of of these Mahasamgikas. But it's not totally fully agreed upon that that's the case. That's one theory. Anyway, you you begin to have the appearance um, of the Prajnaparamita Sutras. Okay? So these started appearing 1st century BC, 1st century AD. His Holiness thinks that you know, you know, because according to to the the Tibetan version, yeah. Well, actually, actually, you know what? I'm wrong. Excuse me. That the 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 the, uh, the, the Paramita Sutras started appearing the latter half of the first century and the second century because it was not it wasn't the first century BC. Okay, because it was uh, Nagarjuna who began to to talk about them and teach on them, and so the Tibetans say that these these sutras were taught by the Buddha when the Buddha was alive, but because they were so profound, most of the audience was bodhisattvas with just a few human beings who were Sangha members there. So, you, you know, when we chant the Heart Sutra, so it belongs to that genre of Prajnaparamita, Perfection of Wisdom Sutras. So it's a great assembly of monks and a great assembly of bodhisattvas. So a lot of the bodhisattvas could have been Arya bodhisattvas who kind of appeared in space sitting around there. Because if you ever go to Rajgira, where where the sutra was taught, the actual space where they say it was taught is not very big, you know. So it could, it, if there were that many people, they must have been, you know, Arya Bodhisattvas and sitting in space or something like this. So as the Tibetans say it, it you know, the Heart Sutra, those, all those sutras are taught at the time of the Buddha because they were so profound, people wouldn't understand them. So they were taken to the land of the Nagas. The Nagas are these kind of serpent-like creatures, uh, some of whom are very intelligent and who have great wealth, and some of whom live under the ocean. And then it was Nagarjuna who went to the land of the Nagas and brought the teachings back. What isn't clear from this story is, were the teachings written down and the scriptures taken to the land of the Nagas, or were they passed down orally in the land of the Nagas? And Nagarjuna learned, you know, memorized them and brought them back and then started writing them down. 
His Holiness has proposed that that it could have been that at the time of the Buddha, some of the people took notes uh, about what these sutras were, or even recorded them. But again, they would they were just known in very small circles because of the idea that they were much too profound for average people to understand. So he thinks that it could have been that they were known in small circles, not widely known in society. And uh, Nagarjuna, who lived in southern India and who went up to northern India, you know, because he lived at Nalanda, the great university up there, as he traveled around India, he came in contact with these sutras and collected them and then began to expound upon them. So that that's his theory, which, you know, makes it fit in a little bit more with the possibilities of regular history. People at the university, they're not... They don't necessarily think that because they think that writing actually came into existence. You know, that there wasn't any writing at the time of the Buddha. But again, everything's so murky about what actually happened back then, you know. So you don't know. Uh, Anyway, so you have this whole new genre of teachings that start to appear uh, in the first centuries AD. And... You know, eventually these, this became known as a tradition, the Mahayana tradition. But, you know, at the time that these sutras appeared, you know, I don't even know if the name Mahayana was necessarily even used in those sutras initially. Yeah? And so, you know, people started learning those sutras, Nagarjuna ex- explained them, Asanga explained them, you know, different of the great Indian sages talked about them and wrote treatises about them. Um, but it wasn't a distinct tradition at all. And by this time, you know, you know, you had the actual creation of monasteries. They were called linas. Some were in the caves, some were, you know, buildings that were built where, you know, the, the sangha would live together. And you would have people... Uh, doing all sorts of different practices but living in the same monastery because also by this time okay, not only did you have the appearance of the Mahayana but from the centuries BC you already then had the fragmentation into, into several different um, well the Tibetans call it Hinayana traditions but that, that's really difficult you know because other people don't call them Hinayana traditions. It, it's interesting that Theravada say, yes, there were 18 early schools. Maybe we just call it early traditions. How about that? Okay, so everybody agrees that in the centuries BC, there were like 18 early schools. And some of them may have been, you know, you had the Staviras and the Mahasangikas from that one schism. And then from the other schism at... at um, uh, at the other place, at uh, Pataliputra. Then you had the uh, Vibhajyavadins and the Sarvastavadins. They appear, and then, you know, all of those had different uh, splits within them. What's very curious is when you you examine what's written in different historical books, the listing of the 18 schools is different. 
You know, even within the Tibetan traditions, there's two ways of listing the 18 schools. And they'll have inevitably like maybe two or four of them that are major ones and then some that are branches of those. But then in each listing, there's different ones here. And sometimes the names are different. So the names of the 18 aren't always the same. And within the Pali, you know, written tradition, then the names of the 18 aren't all the same. So it's very interesting. So it seems like some of these schools may have appeared. You know, it seems like the first schism that got patched up was because of Vinaya, but then the ones after that were because of doctrine, and it didn't seem like like those got reconciled quite as quickly. And then... um, you know, so you have these different schools starting to form because of doctrine and doctrinal differences. And then as Buddhism spread to different places, then you have the arisal of different schools simply because of the geographical area. Because, you know, Buddhism went to that place, they developed their own way of reciting uh, the scriptures or whatever, or you know, and so it became a different school. You know, they might interpret this thing or that thing in a slightly different way. So you wound up with these 18 schools. It's not sure if all of them had different Vinayas or not, but because we have, I think, six Vinayas that are, are that are written now. Uh, and there, there was the Pali, and then the Chinese canon had five of them including the Mula Srivastavada Vinaya, which is also the Tibetan tradition. Um, so the Chinese canon is very complete as far as that goes. But it's not sure if all 18 of them had different Vinayas. When you look at the Vinayas, you know, considering that they spread were in such diverse geographical areas, they're remarkably similar considering they were passed down orally. Yeah, But then when you come to the Dharma, I would imagine, too, that if you had different uh, sutras in different traditions, there's probably good likelihood that there's differences between them simply because, you know, when people repeat things and memorize things, they change, don't they? And then, of course, uh, you know, the commentaries and the ways of interpreting the sutras uh, seem somewhat different in these different areas. Okay, so all of that started happening B.C. Okay, then A.D. you have the appearance of the Mahayana Sutras. Okay, Western historians say, oh, people just made them up. You know, the Mahayana traditions say, no, they weren't just made up. They were spoken by the Buddha and, you know, kept secret for many years because they were so profound and, you know, people weren't capable of understanding them at the time. Um... So at the monasteries in the centuries A.D., you would have people from, you know, maybe different, the Srivastavadans or the Theravadans or the this sect or the that sect, um, living there. And then you, and then, uh, then the, you would have some of them learning the Mahayana Sutras and some of them not, because as long as you kept the same Vinaya, um, you know, what you did in terms of your practice, there was some diversity because, you know, probably people just emphasized different things in their practice. And so Mahayana wasn't even seen as a separate tradition. And then later on you had the appearance of, of more and more Mahayana Sutras, 
Um, so first there, there were the Prajnaparamita. Then you had sutras like the, um, uh, Ram, what's his name? Starts with the V, the layman for not for conversation. Yeah, Vimalakirti, yes, him. So his sutra. So by the time of the appearance of the Vimalakirti sutra, there was something of the arhats were really starting to not look so good there, you know, because he was a layman and he was wiser than Shariputra and, you know, all of this. Whereas in the Prashnaparamita one, um, you know, the great arhats were some of the main expounders, you know, Shariputra and Avalokiteshvara. Well, then by the time, so that was the Prashnaparamita were the early ones. They weren't putting down the arhats by the time of Vimalakirti, then they were putting down the arhats. Then, after a few centuries, then you have sutras like the Lotus Sutra appearing, the Pundarika, no, Sadharma Pundarika Sutra, and that one was very critical of the quote quote Hinayana and said that, you know, anybody who says the Mahayana teachings were not the teachings of the Buddhas, creating all this heresy and bad karma and so on and so on. So some historians will say that by the time, you know, the Lotus Sutra appeared, there was uh, some backlash against the appearance of all these new sutras, and so that's why the Lotus Sutra came on so so hard uh, against the, you know, people who criticized the Mahayana. So, I mean, we don't know what happens. I'm trying to present both views here. My own personal thing is... Um, I don't get into a big thing about were these, you know, did the Buddha actually speak them when they were alive? Because when you read these sutras and when you practice them, they work. So that's definitely good enough for me, you know. And how are you going to prove anything was the word of the Buddha anyway? You know, I think that's really hard. And then you get the different Vinaya sutras and each one is saying, well, our Vinaya is the right one. Well, how are you going to prove that? any of that either, you know? So, um, and the Mayana sutras are, are really quite incredible. 